Welcome to the Senior Story Hour, where we share poems, stories, observations of life, written by the Franklin Senior Center Writers Group. Hi, I'm Faith Flaherty. I'm James Zeman. Hi, I'm Joe Ewald. Hi, I'm Alice Church. Hi, I'm Kathy Salzberg. Hi, I'm Bill Wiley. Hi, this is Steve Sherlock. And we're here for the Writers Group for another session. So thank you for joining us to listen in as we tell some wonderful stories and chapters from a variety of aspects around our lives in life in general. Who will go first today? I'll go first. Go Billy. <laughs> uh, this, this is about the uh, Franklin Bellingham Rail Trail that I went on about, about a month or more ago. Okay. We gathered together at the Franklin Water Well number 6 on Grove Street. Eleven of us here, we start to mix. We walk to the first path, big sign, Franklin Trunkline Trail, that we see. Our eyes do not fail. More signs we see, Franklin Bellingham Rail Trail, that I see. Old railroad tracks here, they used to be. The trail goes on a long, long way to Bellingham. The trail will go, if you go all the way. It was a happy day. I take photos of the trail. I take photos of flowers. We walk for a couple of hours. A long walk, but it was so nice. Being a Franklin resident all of my life. First time I've seen this. I'll never think twice. I imagined train tracks here from so long ago. It must have been fun. I'd sure like to know. We walked about a mile and a half till we came upon a street overpass. 2020 Franklin Trunkline Trail, written in cement over the top. It will last. A small sign just on the other side of the overpass telling the story of the trains from the past. We decide to stop here and we turn back. Some of the group go on walking a little further ahead. We turn back to return. On our feet we tread. <laughs> At a slow pace we go as we head from where we started. It's so nice seeing flowers till we get where we departed. Just as we were back to the trailhead sign, we did start. The group of people who went on ahead of us caught up with us before we depart. We say, we see our goodbyes at the, as we got in our cars. We head for home, not very far. As I look at, at it now, walking with this group makes me feel good. Being in the outdoors again, I'm happy that I could. The history of Franklin, these trails keep it alive. I'm happy to know it. It fills me with pride. Nice. Very good, Bill. Very good. Very good. Good job. It was funny that the people went on ahead and caught up with us before you got back. That's how slow they walked. Indeed. Who's next? I'll go next. Okay. Dear Groomer, while rummaging through my desk the other day, I came across some old notes that clients had given me when they, had, when they dropped their dogs off to be groomed at the village groomer in Walpole, Mass. Groomers often receive notes like these crumpled up keepsakes. We get a chuckle at their sincerely scrawled messages, sometimes shaking our heads in disbelief. Pack rats like me saved them. When we first read them, we probably all shared the same thoughts. Do these people really think I'm Forrest Gump's twin sister? Has this owner-pet relationship crossed that fuzzy line between normal and bizarre? 
Is it ever acceptable for a man to refer to his dog as mini-me? Let me share a few examples. From the dignified owner of a nondescript little mixed breed. Dear groomer, you may have a hard time grooming Lulu. She bites, screams, tries to jump off the table, and wets herself when she gets stressed. Please have patience. She is spoiled rotten, but I assure you, it's through no fault of her own. From an owner who made me feel like the head dominatrix at <laughs> Madame X's house of pain. Dear groomer, the last time you groomed Lady, she looked beautiful. Do her just the same, the same way this time, but make her neck area a little shorter and her ears a little longer. Don't leave her head so floppy and trim her tail evenly. I know you usually brush her teeth, but this time could you also make her goggle with some mouthwash? Her breath, her breath smells like the Cape Cod clam flats at low tide. <laughs> From another owner who lacked confidence in my expertise and or common sense. Dear groomer, instructions on grooming Stella. Do not make her stand on a table. Gravity and arthritis have taken their toll, and she is terrified of heights. First, clip her nails. Next, trim the fur from her pads. Clean her ears. Brush her teeth on the outside only. Avoid putting your fingers between her molars. She's not a bad dog, but she has no discretion. From another concerned mom. Dear groomer, Duke can be rambunctious. He just got out of quarantine after that unfortunate incident with the UPS man. <laughs> but I assure you, it was a complete misunderstanding. He thought the man was going to hit him with that foolish etch-a-sketch thing he was carrying. <laughs> he's really just a big puppy at heart. Please keep in mind that he's not even a year old. He's just big for his age. From a very modest lady, please do not go to extremes when you trim Buster's hind end. He hasn't <coughs> been neutered, and I don't want to have to put briefs on him when we go for our daily walk. <laughs> Sometimes the things I overheard from behind the counter could be just as interesting. Take the elderly woman who is babysitting her grand dog. Just one more cookie for you, Chipper, but we won't tell your parents now, will we? It'll be our little secret. Or the little girl who patted her bull mastiff on the head and told him, Don't cry, Benny. The other dogs will think you're a big baby. It'll be okay. Mama will be get back to get you in a little while. Then we'll go home and have cookies. And <clears throat> some revelations qualified as too much information. Muffy sleeps in the bed with us every night, right under the blankets between me and my husband. I'm afraid she's come down with a case of fleas. If you have time, Kathy, could you take a look at my rash and tell me if it looks like flea bites to you? <laughs> Some clients went to great lengths to impress us with how smart their dogs were, from the owner of an elderly beagle with a weight problem. Watch how he obeys my commands. Nap, Sammy, nap. Or the golden retriever owner. Fetch the ball, Rusty. No, pick it up with your mouth like this. Look at Daddy. Until, <laughs> until that afternoon, I had never witnessed a man retrieve a tennis ball with his teeth. Sometimes even your own family members can surprise you. When my granddaughters were little, they loved to visit the grooming shop. I trained them early not to approach any dog 
without asking me first and not to touch my scissors or dematting tools, but I just wasn't prepared for the day Allison paraded Kara in front of the customers on a leash. She dragged her little sister to the back room, locked her in a cage, and slammed the door. Embarrassed, I hot-footed it back there to put an end to that game. But when I reached in to unhook the child, she growled and tried to nip me. Uh, Very good. (laughs) She was in character. (laughs) Do you make those up or... um... Do you make those up or have uh, well, they they're real? Well, they're based on things that really happened, but <laughs> I did get a lot of those I notes. certainly can understand, <laughs> because if you're a dog lover, you're a dog Those lover. are stories out of your book, right? Yes, that one is. Okay. Yeah. 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 Very yeah. good. Well, I'll go next. My, gee, maybe my allergies are... <laughs> It was a dark and stormy night. Oh, Here no. we go. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was a dark and stormy night. The ominous clouds overhead foretold the scene in front of me. The woman lay stabbed with what looked like a shepherd's hook. No, oh, geez, I keep the woman. I hope the woman who I recognized as Cleo Barrington was dead when the victim was hurled onto the hook and left hanging there. Cleo Barrington must have been 35, although she would never tell if you know what I mean. She had lived in this town, Sunnyview, Massachusetts, for four years. In those four years, she had managed to alienate all the women in town. I know from experience, since I just signed the divorce papers, between my husband Jeff and I. Jeff felt pretty hard for Cleo, who doesn't say, which, which doesn't say much about our marriage, but if I was truthful about the matter, my marriage to Jeff had been in trouble before Cleo worked her charms on him. Cleo haters were so plentiful we met as a group, all women, of course. We didn't call it the Cleo Barrington Haters Club, or anything like that, but the group became like a counseling session. I wasn't taking Jeff back, but Susan Blakely and Irene Tennant wanted to see something to salvage in their marriage and was trying to forgive and forget their husband's indiscretion. Boy, police were going to have a hard time with all these possible suspects in Cleo's homicide. And I knew I headed the list. Most nights these days, I went for a walk to clear my head. That's what happened tonight. I like to go by the gazebo in town where they will soon have their summer concerts. That's where I found Cleo. I dialed 911 and it took minutes for the police to get to the crime scene. The coroner's office had just put the body in the tarp and put it in the ambulance. The crowd was thinning out, and I saw the chief of police starting towards me. I sat down at a nearby bench, and the chief, Bob Lodo, joined me. You found the body, he asked. Why would you be out on a night like this? I explained how I usually take a walk every night, especially since Jeff and I are divorcing. That won't happen now, said the chief. I paused. I wasn't sure what he meant. Oh, I said, this doesn't mean Jeff and I will get back together. 
I can't think of that now. The poor woman, no matter how much I detested her, she didn't deserve this. Her poor family was then I sensed a tear dropping from my face. You feel bad for Cleo, the chief asked. I looked at him incredulously. Of course, who would do such a thing? You think it's murder, asked the chief. Of course it is. I can't imagine Cleo could hang herself from that hook or whatever it is, I said sarcastically. The chief looked at me. Do you know anybody that would want to harm Cleo? Only every woman in town whose husband was dazzled by Cleo's charms, I said. The chief asked me if Cleo had any family, an ex-husband, kids, mother, father. I told him I didn't know. Chief asked Susan Blakely and Irene Tennant about Cleo. Paul Blakely and Jim Tennant had a fling with Cleo before Jeff. I know the women are trying to give, to still give their marriage a chance, seeking marriage counseling. But if I remember correctly, one of them hired a private detective. That's how they discovered their husband's indiscretion. I got up. The chief followed. If you're not arresting me, can I go home? I'm tired. <laughs> the chief asked if I was leaving town. I shook my head. Good luck, I said. Cleo was trouble. I don't envy you poking around <coughs> into her life. She probably left a bevy of dead bodies in her wake. Not literally, but figuratively. The chief insisted he drive me home. You never know, he said. He was quiet on the way home, and I think I fell asleep because the chief tapped me on the shoulder. I think I thanked him and said, let me know if I can help you. I turned the key to my house, locked the door, quickly got undressed and was asleep instantly. I called in sick the next day after waking up at 11 a.m. The gruesome images of last night stayed in my mind and would forever be in my mind, I knew. I was sure Cleo's murder would be front page news in tonight's newspaper, but for now, I needed to do errands so I could keep a low pro profile and stay in the house since I knew my friends would want to know every detail. Luck was with me as I shopped and did not see anyone I knew, but my luck ran out as I pulled into my driveway and saw the police chief and what looked like most of his offices interspersed on my lawn. My front door was open, the garage door as well. When the chief saw me drive into the driveway, he came up to my car and motioned me to get out. I did very slowly. Let's go inside. What the hell? Inside. By the time we reached my front steps, I was really pissed. The hell do you think you're doing? I'm arresting you for the murder of Cleo Barrington, he began taking cuffs out of his back pocket. Oh, please, no cuffs. He relented. Oh, my God, I stammered. Sit down. I took the nearest chair, an overstuffed, well-worn favorite chair of Jeff's in the living room that I meant to get rid of. I notified Jeff this morning of Cleo's murder. He said he was home all evening trying to call her on, his, on her iPhone. The chief hesitated. 
I waited for him to continue. I was getting more confused by the minute. Jeff gave us permission to search your house. Since he's still on the mortgage, and technically he's, he, it's his. We found the shepherd's hook in the garage with your fingerprints on it. Do you know why that would be? The blood turns out to be Cleo's. I didn't know we had a shepherd's hook, so I can't understand why my prints would be on it. I said, my voice breaking. Jeff says you bought it for a Christmas play at the church last year. What does he know about going to church? He never went. It was always the kids and I. You hated Cleo for breaking up your family. I started to flail my arms when all of a sudden I started crying. No, not crying, sobbing. I couldn't help it. I wanted to stop all of the last 48 hours events. Cleo's body looking so vulgar. I motioned for the chief to get me some tissues on the piano across the room, and he did. It took me a good 20 minutes to get a hold of myself. When I did, I screamed defiantly that I did not kill anyone. I couldn't do that. I know, said the chief. You know, you know, what the hell are you doing to me, chief? Sorry, I had to do that. Bull, I thought you were my friend. I am. Now let's put our heads together and find out why Jeff wants you arrested for Cleo's murder. Very good. Oh, little twist in that dark. Yeah. (laughs) Very good. Uh (laughs) I don't know whether it can stay that way or keep on going. It could stay that way. I think it could. It could. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were going to confess. (laughs) <laughs> I did I too. I kind of figured she wasn't. <laughs> so I kept you on the edge of your seat. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so funny because I had written from a previous group when we were here something about that story, and I wrote, um, they found her body. She was stabbed in the gazebo. <laughs> what part of the body is that? <laughs> Good. Okay, I'm up next. Okay. okay. My name is Joe Joe Ewald, and my story is called "The Cross and the Switchblade," and it's by David Wilkerson. And this is about drug addiction, uh, which I was one, and I had a bad Percocet habit for nine years, and. Um, it was so easy to get the drugs in Virginia, where most of that time was spent. But when I moved up here to Massachusetts, it was a lot harder to get. So I went out of my way to get them, and then I just got sick and tired of going out of my way all the time. It was getting harder and harder to get Percocets in Massachusetts. They really cracked down. Mm-hmm. And so it forced me to quit. And it was tough, but something gave me um, the ability to gut it out. I mean, it took me six months, and um, You're I didn't, very lucky. Yeah, I didn't. I, well, this is where this is leading to. I'll get to that in a second. But um, it was. I didn't participate in any family gatherings. Mm-hmm. 
I was just, I just wanted to be my, by myself. And it took about six months. The only drug I was on was uh, Prilosec. But my addiction is like Captain Kangaroo compared to other addictions like heroin. And this is where my story begins. And um, I think I got a calling um, from a, a power, a higher power. Because I went to Barnes & Noble on Saturday, and then when I was coming back out to uh, catch my bus, there was a table there, and there was a couple of teenagers behind the table, and they had cutting boards to sell. And I had run into these people before, about three months ago, and they're not there all the time, but they're former, um, they, uh, they're, they're mainliners, which is a heavy term for a heavy heroin addict, which makes my addiction you know, like I said, Captain Kangaroo compared to theirs. And a teenage boy, and, and you know, he's, I was telling Faith he was filled with the Holy Spirit, it looked like. Uh, he was happy, and um, I put a dollar, you know, I was telling Faith if I had more, I, I would put 10, and uh, he gave me this book, The Cross and the Switchblade. And this is what my story is about, where something from a higher power gives you the courage to change your life, you know, whether finding, you know, uh, religion to start a new life. And um, when, let me start here. So anyways, this preacher, Dave Wilkerson, um, all started in 1958 in Pennsylvania. And he had a, co a congregation there, and, and he was pretty good. And then one evening he was looking at a life Life magazine, and you saw a picture of a boy on trial in New York for murder. You know, they were all drug addicts, you know, a gang. And so something told him to go to New York by just looking at the face of this kid. So he went there, and uh, he attended the trial. And then after the hearing, tried to see the judge. And um, he confronted the judge, and the judge didn't want to, want to have anything to do with religion. And um, he baited the preacher, because there were photographers there, and he said, why are you holding your, your Bible, preacher? Why don't you hold it up and show it? So he held up the Bible, and they took pictures of him, and it came out the wrong way. So he was barred from the trial. But this is the way the Holy Spirit works. And it set him up to get into to get in to get in the front door of the gangs, because when the when the gangs all saw him get thrown out, he was one of them, because he got thrown out by the judge. So that's how he got accepted, because the gang members thought, now you're one of us, preacher, because you just got thrown mm -hmm. out by the authorities. So anyway, that got him in, but of course, you're going to have failure. So he went back to New York. The Holy, he was talking to his grandfather, and he said, I, you know, I want to talk to these gangs, and, and do you think I have a future in this? And, and his grandfather said, no, because your group is so small. I see you talking to thousands and thousands of kids. So he went back to New York, and he was there for four months. And then he ran into the leader of the gang called Nick. And he told, he said to the preacher, come near me, preacher, and I'll cut you. 
So preacher Dave Wilkerson said to him, and, and this is really powerful, and it's hard to do. I couldn't do it. Said to him, you could cut me in a thousand pieces, and every piece would love you. And that's powerful for somebody to say, you know, I would like, don't stab me, you know. And this, but the Holy Spirit, yeah. love conquers all. And that's, and Nikki quit. He ended up eventually founding a home for boys, and it's called Teen Challenge International. I've heard of it. Yeah, and, you know, for me, I mean, it's, um, you got to find something to give you courage, you know, and um, going through it is, uh, for me, I can just imagine for them, for heroin addicts, the withdrawals, withdrawals is like something. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the hooks get into you and, you and you use it, right? And you feel good. But when you want to pull the hooks out, it hurts. Mm -hmm. And then one more thing here. The preacher, you know, asked Nikki, you know, what's the most common thing that gang members have in common in drug addicts? And he said, preacher... Everybody's lonely because I was doing it. My my only friend was Percocets. I didn't have any friends, so being lonesome, lonely is true because I didn't have any friends. And my family started to peel away from me. So your only friend was drugs. So they, that's what they said, you know. And so my whole story is: um, don't neglect a power above if you run like. You're moving. Okay, moving is a crisis. So you need courage to move. You don't want to do it, right? right. Moving's like a hassle. <laughs> oh, so I'm using a little thing. Every Anything you get into that changes your life, mm. you need courage and, uh, and forgiveness. So that's my little story here. And, I'm, I, and then for me, I think I used a story before on a radio recording. I almost got killed by a bus. Just um, at, just after yeah, I just after quitting, and then I was um, I had an appointment with Dale Kurtz, the veteran uh, guy here in town. He's retiring, and uh, he told me, "Why don't you try going to the church and uh, you know get into St. Vincent de Paul?" And I, I did, and that's how I got into the church. Then I met Faith, and so I've been like five or six years into the church, and I, I tell you, I'm a totally completely different person wow. than I was before because I was selfish. Uh, I didn't care about my family. Couldn't give mm -hmm. a, a, a crud about anything. So go, going to, the, I think, you know, a higher power led me mm -hmm. to, you know, the church, and I met some great friends, Faith here, and a completely different person. I'm happy. And when a crisis comes, you, that's the big thing. You have, have to have courage, you know, to meet it. Because life is not a bunch of dandelions <laughs> coming out of the ground. Mm. You know, you got your good spots. Of course, you, you know, that's the bad stuff makes the good stuff better, I think. You know, that's the way it's supposed to be set up because if it was good all the time, you know what I'm saying, it'd be too easy. Wouldn't you, wouldn't, like you wouldn't appreciate it enough. Right. So anyway, I'm here today. I'm happy, and I'm surrounded by great friends, and, you know, I, I but... I can understand.
people coming heroin addicts. And my last thing here, I don't know if you've heard of Mass and Cass, the methadone mile. Yeah, there's and, been a number of articles. Yeah, really somebody got, got somebody got killed there the other night, mm -hmm. and that they were trying to get him out. Mayor Janney was trying to get him into a, a an empty hotel building down the street. And of course, the neighborhood said, we don't want those kind of people in our neighborhood. Is it uh, um, street? It's, it's Massachusetts oh, Avenue. A Cassandra. Oh, oh, yeah, so it's, it's so the, the nickname wow. is is Mass and Cass. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, and it's uh, they have tents out there, and you know it's uh, it gives you an example of what what heroin can do to you. So through through the Holy Spirit, it gives you an opportunity to to live a lot. Don't love drugs, love people. You know, it's the whole thing. Drugs, it's the devil. You know, it's like heroin says, love me, instead of people. You have a lot of courage, so. Um, yeah, I guess so. Um, have the, you ever, uh, I know you say you don't go to AA meetings. No, I don't. Would, well, it, you, you know. You would be a wonderful speaker. Mm. Yeah. Make a plan while you can. Terror in old age. What if you discovered that all the plans you had made for the last years of your life, even for your funeral, were going to be completely changed without your permission? You do have a plan, right? What if you found out that the people you thought were going to care for you in old age would not be doing so? and that everything you owned would be taken from you? What if you learned you would be involuntarily taken from your home, placed in a facility, and heavily medicated, despite all your wishes to the contrary? What if you were told you could not visit with your friends or loved ones ever again? What if there was nothing you or anyone else could do to stop it all? These questions describe exactly the realities that seniors face if they do not recognize the awful possibilities and take responsibility for protecting themselves while they are able to. When we are unable to take care of ourselves, and it is more often when than not if, we become easy targets for abuse. There are many kinds, physical, psychological, financial, sexual, ageism, abandonment and neglect, loss of dignity and respect. And there are many sources, the government, health and care facilities, caregivers, attorneys, physicians, police, and or family members. Just shoot me is not an option. <laughs> if you are weak, sick, disabled, maybe mentally challenged, even temporarily, you will not be able to stop the abuse unless you have done some planning. You can't count on any help, especially if it is family abuse. And 90% of elder abuse is by family. It is the most evil kind of abuse, easily hidden and hard to fight. 
and you probably won't have enough time or money for any kind of protracted battles. Now, many people are shaking their heads thinking, oh, that can't happen to me. <laughs> but here's a true story, which along with studies and statistics shows that it can happen to anyone. A true crime story. I experienced in horrified disbelief the murder of my companion by his daughter. Because I had no idea that such things happened, it took too long for me to realize what was happening, and all my attempts to fail to find help were futile. Time ran out. He was an independent, life-loving, proud man. He died just four months after being temporarily ill and confused and was involuntarily put in an institution by his daughter, who knew just how to kill him from there. So I set out making my plan for how I want to live out my life. And I swore I would spend the rest of my life trying to persuade others to do the same. Oh, good. A worthy goal. Yeah. Mm. A worthy goal. It's something that's um, not really talked about. It's everybody's fear. They're old. It's everybody's fear. Right. It's not, you know, um, to other people important enough to expose it. Um, right. More so. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, that was very well written and, and very well read. Thank you. you. Bet. Who's next? Okay. Change of pace. Change of pace. Yeah, we've had some <laughs> yes. tough topics today, which is quite all right. You can need that as well. <laughs> it was Faith's 65th birthday, and she decided she wanted to give herself a present, a pet. Although Faith loved all animals. She knew she didn't want a dog because she didn't want to have to walk it. And all the fish she ever had died. Besides, the aquarium eventually smelled like the tide was out. <laughs> and she didn't want to have to clean that smelly scum. No. There's always birds, that is, parakeets, cockatoos, parrots, etc. Again, there would be cages to be cleaned. You betcha. It is clear that the answer is a cat. A cat, not a kitten. I don't want my pet to outlive me. <laughs> Who knows what would become of it? And it would be an indoor-outdoor cat because I don't want to bother with kitty litter. Cats oh. clean themselves, so I don't have to do that. Yes, I've decided. The next day, Faith went to the shelter to pick out her cat. What a heart-wrenching decision. Oh. She wanted them all. She felt like rescuing the most desperate, the sickest, the feeblest, and the ones no one else would take. The cutest and the friendliest would find home soon enough, but who would ever adopt the undesirables? Faith didn't know what to decide. The shelter lady knew Faith's dilemma and asked her some probing questions. Did she want a short hair or a long hair? It didn't matter. How old a cat? Old. Will children be in the home? Yes. Can I pay? Can I care for the pet? Yes. 
While the lady was asking Faith her questions, the cats were eyeing Faith, <laughs> ignoring Faith, making figure eights in and around Faith's legs, uh, or meowing for <laughs> attention. There was one tabby that looked old because, although he was gray and black striped on his back and sides, he had a lot of gray and white that made him look old. How old is this cat? Faith asked, because he was playing with his shoelaces like a kitten yet had the coloring of an elder. She's around 10 years old and has arthritis. She's on medicine. Do you think you can care for her and bring her to the vet regularly? Ha, huh. maybe we take the same meds. <laughs> <laughs> How long is her life expected? <laughs> she may live another five to eight years if she stays an indoor cat. Faith didn't want an indoor cat, and she didn't want a sick cat. And she didn't want a pet that played with her shoelaces and looked so huh. appealing and purred so loud oh. and meowed so pitifully. <laughs> but Faith impulsively picked the kitty up, Absolutely. and the kitty instantly settled in Faith's arms and melted into her body like a sleeping baby. Mm -hmm. Faith was hooked. After paying the adoption fee, which was actually free because of the cat's age, but the vet's bill, her medicine, the cost of her spaying, her flea and tick bath, her kitty litter, some toys, food, and a carrier, Faith's purse was $300 lighter. Mm -hmm. But Faith didn't seem to mind. Upon leaving, Faith turned and said, by the way, what's her name? Fido. You're kidding. No, <laughs> a cat named Fido. <laughs> I love it. And I think I'll be writing sequels, The Adventures of Faith and Fido. I love it. Oh, it's a good story. It's a good story. Yeah, it's a great story. Fido. So you did a travel log for us? I've got a little ditty and a teaser for more, because I think those who saw the email, I think it was last week, it was the week before, um, just while driving and absorbing the sceneries, for some reason, the... Uh, Ring Around the Rosy children's rhyme came back to me, so I oh, just reworded it. I like it. To be Ring Road Round Iceland, three couples driving, glaciers, volcanoes, and waterfalls. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm a great singer, but you get the idea. Too bad um, Allison here hits that. <laughs> Thanks for being with us here on Senior Story Hour. Until the next time. I'm Peter J. Remember, be they laced with gravity, levity, wisdom, or whimsy, the meaning, experiences of life become a little larger when you share them, when you take a moment to commit pen to paper and just write. This is FPR, Franklin Public Radio.